and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out why vests have no sleeves. And today's episode is brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. So we've had a pretty good run here of having uh, first-time guests on The Remnant, and we figured we wanted to take a break from that for a little bit. Uh, for today's episode and actually have someone from down the hall, as it were, uh, and have back, I think for the fourth time, we'll have to get our um, um, our research department to, to look into <laughs> this. Uh, my colleague, uh, David French from The Dispatch. Thanks for having me, Joan, especially on a week where I'm just feeling drunk with power. Um, I, I single hand, I found out earlier this week that I single handedly, uh, trolled the entire feminist movement with a single tweet. And then the Snyder cut has been released and that would spend, uh, a, a, me and, and Sonny Bunch and countless others have been agitating for that. So I'm at the peak of my powers right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, when that news came out, I kind of expected the reports about you and Jim Pithakukis and Sonny Bunch, um, <laughs> just, gambling through the hills like uh the the von trapp family <laughs> um <coughs> but uh explain so congratulations that's one of the reasons we want to have you on is congratulate on this we will talk about the <laughs> snyder cut i promise um but um explain to me how you um set off how how you you're responsible for believe all women or what did, what did, what did you do this time well, here's what I did, Jonas. So Susan, well, here's what Susan Faludi said I did in the New York Times. So she she says the Believe All Women is a uh, not a the true feminist slogan. The true feminist slogan is Believe Women. But there was a right wing trap sprung on the feminist movement that they that the that was sold to the larger public that feminists were urging Americans to believe all women. And how was this right-wing trap spunk, uh, sprung? She went back and she researched uh, Twitter and the hashtag Believe All Women. And she found in like September, October of 2015, Hillary Clinton, with her 20 plus million Twitter followers or however many she had, uh, tweeted out that we should believe all survivors. And then Juanita Broderick, like three months later, tweeted about her experiences, uh, you know, and her allegations against Bill Clinton and I quote retweeted, believe all women, question mark, question mark, question mark. And then Faludi says that the breath was on the ember. That tweet <laughs> was the breath on the ember. And I went back and I looked at it. I didn't even remember it. And I looked at it and it had, so this is early 2016. I think I might've had 20,000 Twitter followers or something. And it had six retweet or five retweets and six likes. But those were power. That's a powerful five retweets there, Jonah. Well, uh, as what, what is it? Archimedes said, give me a big enough lever and I can move the world. You know, I mean, you that's all you needed. Um, yeah. So I actually I, I hadn't I'd seen so much of the chatter about the Flutie thing. I never went and actually read it. Um, so I didn't realize she name dropped. She called you out by name. Yeah, I was the guy. I, I You know, it's like the the pebble that starts the 
the avalanche, you know, that turns into the boulder that turns into the avalanche was that it wasn't Hillary saying, believe every survivor. It was that tiny little retweet from me uh, that was the breath on the ember. It was the thing that started it all. And and then she went on and, and she tried to argue that believe all women meant something really different, very different, Jonah, from believe women. Um, yeah, which I don't get. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're now back in a safer wheelhouse for me. You know, syntactically or ontologically or however you want to put it, believe believe all women strikes me as logically um, synonymous with believe women. Yeah, right. You're bu- it's redundant, and believe means believe. I mean, it's it doesn't mean hear or respect right. or, as you said in a, a G file recently, take mm-hmm. women seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, believe means believe, um, and. And, you know, and so you feel like what's the term that's constantly used these days, you're you're just being it's just gaslighting. Right. Uh, It's just gaslighting to say believe meant anything other than believe. Well, and also, um, I mean, you know, stuff better than I do. But I I remember when the Title IX, the new Title IX stuff, the the the. You know, the getting rid of due process stuff really started to emerge. Was it I think it was Zerlina Maxwell, who you see on. MSNBC all the time. She wrote a piece for the Washington Post saying that, yeah, the, the, the cost of convicting, wrongly convicting a few people is a price that we have to pay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> to believe all women. So like there were people actually putting this stuff, you know, they were saying it out loud, you know? Um, so anyway, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's all so, don't you find it though at some point exhausting? <laughs> Uh, there's so many exhausting things, Jonah. I mean, yeah, it's exhausting, particularly because, A, um, it wasn't just conservatives who were saying, believe all women, sort of, you know, ironically or trolling or whatever. I mean, this was, it wasn't as common as believe women, but it was part of the argument. Believe all women was part of the argument. And I put some of the examples in in my Tuesday newsletter. Um, and then also the entire legal edifice of American higher education was changed by the Obama administration at scale from coast to coast to better reflect a believe women ethos based on the idea that false uh, false charges of sexual assault or sexual misconduct are vanishingly rare. I mean, you would see all of these statistics bandied about that, you know, what, 4% or 6% of sexual misconduct charges are false, which were junk statistics from the beginning because our system doesn't adjudicate like that. It adjudicates burdens of proof. And so it's simply not the case that that our system even determines whether an allegation is false. It just determines whether you've met your burden of proof. And if when you dug down into the studies, you would find that they would they'd even subdivided out an entire segment, almost half of the claims had not been pursued by prosecutors um, and they counted them as true, even though, you know, the the law enforcement authorities didn't believe they had enough evidence to proceed and but they were counted as true. So a lot of this, there, there's been an entire uh, cultural and legal effort to move the scales towards Believe Women. And then now after Tara Reid, we learned that it's all about, well, we just want to respect and take women seriously. What? <laughs> yeah. No, um, um, 
So, you know, my big thing about one of my big complaints is that a lot of people confuse ideological thinking with categorical thinking. Right. And um, ideology is, in my view, is just like sort of a checklist of your principles that it's, first of all, it's good to have principles. And second of all, it's good to be aware of what your principles are, what your priors are, so you can take account of them and all these kinds of categorical thinking just basically says that there's a transitive property to, you know, that, you know, it's like, People are like commodities. If you know what one potato is, you know what all potatoes are, right? If you know what <laughs> right. one black person is, you know what all black people are. That's not an ideological point of view. That's a way of thinking about people in terms of categories. And right. the, the one, you know, this is sort of a kind of Hayekian point, but one of the reasons why you get into trouble with these top-down state-run things is that for data analytic purposes, it is so much easier if you can just treat people like categories, yes. right? You know, and you make a population as, as legible and you say, okay, in the category is these people all are one thing and these people all are another thing. And the problem is, is that the closer you get to any quote unquote category of human being, you just realize how much more complicated the situation is than, yeah. than the, the sort of, facile, facile, you know, data analytics, that 30,000 foot level kind of thing. And I just find that, you know, my, my dad used to talk about how we were starting to digitize um, our understanding of our society rather than have an analog mm -hmm. understanding of it. And I, I kind of think now that, that neither of those things apply. It's more like a, you know, it's, it's, almost like we're seeing things as allegorical where <laughs> like, you know, if you read Pilgrim's progress, you have a character, you know, like one character is Miss, Mr. Divine devotion or something. Yeah, and right. another one is like Sally vice, you know, they're, they're wearing their role categorical role on their sleeve. And everyone just wants to have arguments that don't take the facts on the ground into account anymore because that just messes with everybody's narrative. And I don't remember why I got on this. That's what <laughs> got me on it. So, well then, you know, in this area, there's the categories, male problem, right. Right. woman believe. I mean, right. you know, so you just get into these really simplistic categories rather than two human beings who both of them should be treated with respect. Both of them should be accorded rights because we don't have this God's eye view of all of the things that have occurred and have real trouble adjudicating questions. Uh, you know, we, we have real trouble adjudicating allegations of criminal activity, especially these kinds of allegations of criminal activity. And if we have and have, and no if to it, we have definitely in the past gone way too far in uh, creating cultural and legal hurdles uh, for women to come forward uh, the the answer to a mistake is not an overcorrection. Uh, it's to try it's to try to find what the true standard should be, and and yeah, we just get directly into your categories. And I think one of the things that really truly um, exacerbates that is sort of the ubiquity of social media and the instant access to basically every voice on the other side. Which, if you're looking at it fairly, you would see a wide range of people from nuance to strident to you name it, but you can always find at least one voice 
that's going to fit your category. Right. And you can elevate that. That's the whole nut picking thing that we've talked about in the past. You can elevate yeah. that voice and say, see, see, you can, here's what they're like. They are like this. And so you can always reinforce the the categorical idea. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, um, if you wanted to, you can go back and find tweets from all sorts of people saying, yes, all women, or yes, believe all women, like doubling yes. down on it, or yes, all white people are racist. You know, I mean, there's, um, but the fact that that person is, you know, like got eight followers <laughs> it gets completely lost in the equation and all that. Anyway, you mentioned before about, you used the phrase God's eye view. And that was actually the real reason I wanted to have you on here. Um, other than the fact that it's always fun to talk to you. Um, I got, I got pulled into this rabbit hole the other day. So as, as I say, um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm in a weird place. I'm separated from my family right now. I'm, I'm truly kind of just exhausted and disgusted with politics right now. And I, yeah. I can't, you know, the, the thing that drives, you know, a career of writing at least like 5,000 words a week for 20 years yeah. is, um, <laughs> is my capacity to sort of be annoyed or pissed off at stuff. And I just, sometimes it just goes down and I have to let the battery recharge. And so I just didn't want to write about politics. And I did this interview for, with Doug Wilson, the theologian who, you know, right. And, mm -hmm. um, and out of, I don't think they're going to air it um, or release it until the summer, but like basically the first question out of the box, he was like, hi, it's great to have you here. So I want to talk about, eschatology does a country <laughs> lose its way if it doesn't have an eschatology and we went on about eschatology and it you know i, I know what eschatology is i know it, i come at it more from either sort of apocalyptic sci-fi stuff right um or from uh sort of philosophy uh history of progressivism don't immunitize the eschaton all that stuff but i really don't know much about it in the place where it sort of matters the most, which is just on the religious side of things. And so I thought right. you're, you're my religious friend. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I just, I, you're the guy I can, I can bounce you and Dave Bonson are guys I can bounce this stuff off of. And so um, first of all, can you give me a basic overview of, uh, I mean, I, I know it's complicated of Christian eschatology um, and yeah, why you're supposed to care about it and <laughs> what it means? Well, yeah. So, I mean, eschatology is just for the shorthand version of it is is kind of the the part of of theology that's concerned with the end times and and death, final judgment, etc. And you know the 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 theory. But basis, it, it, just to clarify, it's but it's death and final judgment for humanity, not yes. like your death is not an eschatological moment. No, the, the end we're, of humanity is an eschatological. No, yeah, the, we're talking. Right. We're talking. What's the quote from um, uh, Ghostbusters? Fire uh, and brimstone. Uh, dogs and cats sleeping together. Yeah, right. right yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, real wrath of God stuff. No, so <laughs> you know, to so essentially the the basics is you know that uh, from the foundations of the earth there has been. And, and from creation, there has been a plan for mankind, and that plan has included the uh, arrival, the advent of the Savior, Jesus Christ, 
uh, Christ is crucified. He rose uh, from the dead and he'll come again. He will come back again. And there will be a final judgment uh, at the end of sort of history as we sort of understand history. Now, uh, and he will, you know, so these, he, he died, he rose, he'll come again, he will, there, and there will be a final judgment. Beyond those super basics, there's a huge, huge amount of disagreement and debate about what this all means. I mean, there's, right. you know, premillennialism, amillennialism, and I'm not the expert on all of the different strands. So, yeah. you know, Dave Bonson could probably come in here and just, oh, here's this and this and this and this. But I have lived in different Protestant denominations that have wildly different, not really, I, I would say wildly different levels of interest in eschatology. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually one of the differentiators that you'll find, sort of cultural differentiators in American Protestant Christianity, and I, is that it isn't just what do they believe about eschatology, it's how interested are they in eschatology. Yeah. So, for example, I'm part of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, um, Reformed theology, Calvinistic and outlook. And quite frankly, although there is, uh, you know, there is a there is a theology of there is an eschatology in this theological tradition. I think the number I, I I've been in a PCA denomination since 2004. So that's 16 years. I've not heard one sermon about eschatology. I've not in, been in one Sunday school about eschatology. Before that, I was in a much more charismatic Pentecostal denomination called the Assemblies of God, and we were frequently getting sermons in eschatology. We were frequently looking at the signs of the end times. You know, people would shoot around in emails there was a red heifer born outside of Jerusalem. And, you know, that, that this yeah. is a sign that sort of it's all happening. It's all coming together. And before that, I was in a different denomination. And it was completely obsessed with debunking everybody else's eschatology. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'll never forget, there's this, so I, I, that was the Church of Christ, uh, grew up in the Church of Christ, a more sort of fundamentalist, um, mainly Southern not really denomination. They reject the label denomination, more of a, almost like a sect and believed it was the true church. And, and I'll never forget 1989, I'm in college and there was this guy out there in the Nash, greater Nashville area, I believe, who was predicting the rapture. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, part of a particular branch of eschatology that says there will come a moment when all of the believers, all the faithful just blink out of existence and they will leave behind everybody else. There was a popular book series called Left Behind mm -hmm. for a tribulation, a period of, of trial and taxing before the final triumphant battle. And so the guy was projecting the end times. It was like an, a day in October in 1989. And it kind of, at our little Christian school, everybody was making fun of him because that's what, you know, that was the sort of the ethos for making fun of everybody else's eschatology. And the morning of the rapture, I woke up, I'm still in my bed and I, I have a roommate and I kind of laugh and I lean down to tell my roommate, ha, I guess there was no rapture today. And I look down there and he wasn't there. And, <laughs> and for one tenth of a second, I thought, 
there's been a rapture and I was left behind. And then he walked in from the shower and, and all was well. <laughs> um, so I, so the thing I got sort of um, hooked on is, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize Doug Wilson. He was a very generous, decent guy. And, and it was a really interesting conversation, but um, it just got in my head. And I was thinking about this a bunch. Um, you've probably seen me write about this before because I bring it up often. I talk about it often. You know, these two visions, you know, it's this thing I originally got from Yuval Levin about how one of the things you can tell the difference between progressives and, and conservatives apart is that the metaphors for um, conservatives tend to be about space, mm. you know, the garden of liberty, the zone of freedom, that kind of stuff. And the metaphors for, or the verbs for progressives are all about direction, you know, moving forward, leaping ahead, going, you know, you know, thinking about tomorrow, that kind of thing. You're right. And, and you all gets into this and the difference between Thomas Paine and, and Edmund Burke, but it's also a way to think about the differences between, you know, right and left more broadly. And the thing I always talk about is, you know, the English garden versus the, the French garden and the French enlightenment garden the gardener imposes reason and forces plants to grow in the direction that he wants them to. And it's a lot of abstract shapes, a lot of geometric shapes, all that kind of stuff. And in the English tradition, the idea is to create the perfect garden where all, all the members of the, all the plants and animals or whatever of the garden get to be their best version of themselves and grow Mm -hmm. naturally. Right. And so the job of the state in the French enlightenment version is to impose direction and order on the organic society and the idea of the state in the English version is basically to be the watchman, right? Who makes sure that there are no poachers or the gardener, you know, who tends to things, but otherwise leaves them alone. Obviously we like the English one better. I think I can speak for you here. <laughs> yes. Um, but it, it occurred to me when we we're talking about it, you know, the, you know, Wilson's right. And it's something I've written about a bunch that Marxism has an eschatology to it. Progressivism kind of has an eschatology to it. A lot of environmental stuff really has a really creepy eschatology to it. Um, and on the right, which I don't think is the case, was the, always the case, it is not obvious to me that there's an eschatology anymore. I mean, um, I mean, among certain Christians, there clearly is, right? And that's one reason mm-hmm. I want to have you on. But and so the question does come to mind, do you need one? <laughs> I personally have reasons why I, I don't, I, I'm not talking about as a matter of religious faith. I'm talking yeah. about like, what are the knock on benefits of having one for a political movement? Because what makes me nervous is this idea that once you say, okay, this is the direction we're all going, you then create a permission structure to guide everybody in that direction, which makes me very nervous. So anyway. Yeah. Y- th- that's a really great question. I mean, I, I think if you talk about progressivism, Marxism, there is a sense of there is a destination that destination, if not, I mean, arguably is inevitable. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. This is just sort of like these are the laws of of the laws of politics work kind of like the laws of nature. And this is the way it's going to happen. And you see a lot of that in the, you know, are you on the right side of history conversation? Right. And I feel like so much of conservatism has been, you know, <laughs> to to quote the founder of our 
uh, previous employer standing athwart that sense of history and saying, stop. Right. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is reflected in um, th- some of that inherent sense of restraint and, and uh, is rooted in there is there is a Christian element to this that essentially says, OK, we don't know when the end times are coming, but there has it to the extent that history has a direction. What we have seen in, in throughout history is we have seen periods of apostasy followed by punishment, followed by revival and renewal, and that in any, any given in any given generation, what you're wanting to do is either call out the apostasy or participate in the revival, mm-hmm, right, <laughs> right. That, if that makes sense. So, so essentially what you have is a society that drifts from what it should be, drifts from the ideal, has to be called back to the truth. Um, and then There's renewed. a remnant. Pardon? Yeah, the there's remnant, a remnant. Exactly. That, <laughs> that's the whole thing about the remnant. So the remnant says there's a sense of loss to it that says, wait, we were we were part of a larger whole. But at the same time, there's a sense of hope to it because it's the seeds of renewal. And you've seen this time and time again in uh, the biblical narrative. You, you go from the huge number of the children of Israel leaving uh, Pharaoh's Egypt. Only a few end up having the faith that they can conquer the land of Canaan and uh, God, you know, builds the next generation of leadership around that few or those who didn't bow the knee to Baal later on, or, you know, the, probably the smallest of the remnants was the tiny few people at Jesus's feet at the cross. Mm-hmm. And from that tiny few people, which was a whole lot less than were proclaiming Jesus's name when he made the triumphal ent- entry into Ju- Jerusalem, from that tiny few came this enormous church. And so, yeah, I think that there's a, but that isn't uh, necessarily eschatology. It's, it's much more of a, this is just the way the world works and is, and we don't know when, and we don't know how, but there will be a time in which this ends and Christ wins. Um, That the, that the, that, sort of apostasy to renewal, et cetera, ends and Christ wins. And that's a religious angle on it. But for conservatives from speaking from a, a secular point of view, it really just seems much more about there's, well, and the way I traditionally understood conservatism, there are these basic structures and institutions of life. And this is something you've all talks about and, and how you talk a lot about, you know, these ant- for democracy to work, you've got to have a lot of anti-democratic institutions. Right. There are these structures and institutions of life, and it can, it's everything from the family to the church to the civic association to, you know, the a, a, a functional military, which also inculcates certain kinds of values and, uh, and, and ethics. It's not democratic. Not at all democratic. <laughs> and so long as you tend to these things and these things are healthy and working, et cetera, et cetera, then the politics, though not unimportant, are not going to that that the 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 body the the body politic is going to be relatively healthy, and so tending to those things is one of the central enterprises of the conservative movement, and that's not eschatological, right? But so just we don't we don't have to dwell too much on the eschatological stuff. I just think it's interesting, but. Um, so you said before that um, you can, first of all, just out of curiosity, what is the thinking behind rejecting the label denomination 
and, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm just kind of curious that these kind of like the Missouri Lutheran Synod versus yeah. the National. I find all of these, you know, doctrinal uh, factional conflicts utterly fascinating as an outsider. And like my wife, you know, is Catholic. We often talk about how if you gave us a basic Christianity 101 quiz about like what's the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian, total blanks. My excuse is I'm raised Jewish. My wife's excuse is, you know, you're all heretics. So, um, but uh, what what is the what is the reason for rejecting a denomination, the label denomination? Yeah. So this goes back to. so the Church of Christ is what would be called a restorationist church. Mm-hmm. Not it wouldn't it would not be a Protestant church. So the uh-huh. Protestant churches came about as a result of the Protestant Reformation, and there are many sort of branching streams from that. You know, Lutheran, uh, Calvin. Uh, you know, you, the Baptists go back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Sure. Restorationism yeah. is something that happened uh, in American revivalist culture. Um, there were people who said, and Alexander Campbell was one of them, we're restoring the first century church. It's not like we're breaking off from Catholicism or breaking off from this or that. We are restoring true Christianity that there was after the last apostle died, Christianity just apostatized. And, Mm -hmm. and so what we were doing is restoring the true church. We are the church. And it's so if those movements, the reason why I call them a sect mm-hmm. as opposed to denomination, maybe that sect is it, it's, it's a way of distinguishing it from a denominational mindset that says, hey, I, I believe a Methodist is part of the church, but they're just a wrong on A, B, C, and D. Right, and I might right, be right. a Baptist and I'm right on A, B, C, and D, but we're sort of two ships heading to the same shore. Right. And a lot of the restorationists would say there's one ship. Mm-hmm. And it's this ship, and we've rediscovered what true Christianity is. And okay. so that that's um, and that that's a really small that idea is sort of a really small branch of American Christianity. It's getting smaller. Like if you go to a Church of Christ now, that's not going to be the theology. It's much mm-hmm. more going to be just like a normal evangelical church, except they will not use instruments in worship usually. Um, so it's all acapella singing, which was bad for me growing up because I can't sing. Yeah. And I need that guitar and the piano. <laughs> and, and I have all these people around me in the pews who can just absolutely sing. And it's acapella music when when you've got good singers is beautiful. And I was just like always the discordant note, you know. Yeah. 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 No, so. I know. I know what you mean. I, I was in a choir as a kid and I was terrible. So I mouthed the words to many, many a song um, without actually singing. Um, it's it, weirdly, it's it's kind of like the reason why I don't play golf. I actually would love to be good at golf, <laughs> but I'm bad at it. And to get good at it, it means people have to take me golfing and I hold them up and I ruin their game by sucking. <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't like it makes me too uncomfortable. All right. So anyway, I last, last, last bit on the eschatology thing. Um, so you said before that it's the, one of the major distinctions between different denominations or sects or whatever we want, terms we want to use is really just how much they care about it. Yeah. Right. So is there 
an example of, I mean, because it seems to me like knowing what I do a little bit about the sort of the post millenarian and I'm just, I'm, I'm so terrified of Bonson yelling at me. For oh, he, and he will, he'll just, he'll, yeah. he'll wear you out on Twitter. But, um, the, you know, the, the, the social gospel progressives of the early 20th century, which I know a good deal about, and, you know, uh, from Richard Ely and, and, and Walter Rauschenbusch and all these guys, um, they not only believed that the, 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 you know, the eschaton was eminent, but they wanted to hurry it up. Yeah. And, um, so if, is the distinction between different groups about caring about it? Like, does any group care about it a lot, but still think it's going to be really far away? <laughs> right. I mean, if you think yeah. it's going to be 10 generations from now or a hundred generations from now, is that why you don't talk about it or care about it? But if you think it could be in your lifetime and your the signs are coming, that's why you do care about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, I think, I think that if you could, if you're going to parse who cares the most, yeah. I think that's a really fair a, a fair way of saying it. If you think this could happen in your lifetime, right? Um, you're going to be looking. You're going to be looking hard at the signs, and you're going to be very interested in the signs. And you know, uh, I remember I read Jesus is coming. Read, look busy, right? I mean, that's what it boils yeah. down to. <laughs> uh, I I remember reading Late Great Planet Earth. You know, do you remember uh -huh. that giant bestseller? And I read it. You know, growing up in the Church of Christ, and it was the first exposure I'd ever had to an eschat, you know, sort of that, that premillennial eschatological view and where that is saying, hey, this, you're fitting together the puzzle pieces in real time in your lifetime. And oh, oh crud, this could happen. And it really does heighten your awareness. Not, I'm not going to say of the world, but it's sort of a specific you start to look for very specific things and people who are popular uh, writers and thinkers in this area, they, one of the things that makes them popular is that they're telling you the specific things to look for first A, then B, then C. And a lot of things happened uh, in the second half of the 20th century that really kind of put that premillennial view on steroids. And one mm -hmm. of them is the founding of the modern nation state of Israel. Right. You know, for a, right. A lot of stuff in sort of a, a, a an end time, a classic end times view. If you're taking that, I mean, not classic, but like this premillennial end times view, a lot of stuff happens in Israel. But right. one of the problems was there was no Israel. Right. So then you have Israel, you have the advent of the nuclear age, you have all kinds of things that where not only do you have an Israel, but you have the possibility of an apocalypse in a right. way that uh, mankind had not had before. And and you begin to see why people are like, whoa, what's happening? But what I think uh, main members of the mainstream media who look at this often overinterpret this interest. And, and what I mean by that is they take people who are really interested in this and they, they miscast, they, they live their daily lives just like everybody else. Right. But it's, as a general rule, it's almost like to have this as a hobby. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's not something like, well, I don't, I don't need to work because Jesus is coming next September, or you know, um, and, the, and and one of the big misconceptions is towards Israel, like all of these people are like wanting these catastrophic things to happen to Israel so that right. the end times can occur. That's not it 
at all. Um, it's almost, I, you know, at the risk of sounding disrespectful, um, it's almost, it has as much bearing on their daily lives as like those people, you know, who can do deep dives into the Marvel expanded universe. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not like they aren't good accountants and husbands and fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers. They just have this really intense other outside interest. And, and that's my experience with most of it is it's a very intense um, theological interest, but it's not something that um, is sort of the boogeyman of the secular left that says, well, and thus, therefore, these people are very dangerous in American politics. Yeah. No, I, I, that's my sense of it, too. I mean, um, obviously, I encounter fewer people along these lines than you do, but, um, you know, I've traveled around the country a lot. I've met a lot of these <laughs> people, you know, uh, and so I can't, I, I'm, 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 this sort of gets to one of my points about like, um, people misunderstand the tone deafness of some of the Republican pre-Trump Republican stuff. Like, you know, I used to tell people I would go to all sorts of events where I would be like the dinner speaker. Yeah. And, and so they're, they're paying me money <laughs> to come there. Right. So clearly there's not a lot of evidence for anti-Semitism, right? So that's right. not what I'm talking about. And, but there is just, there was always something tonally weird about as a new guy who grew up in New York, who's Jewish, but not that Jewish. And um, you hear the opening sort of invocation prayer stuff. And it's, you know, which I have no problem with on, you know, as a matter of just basic de decency and, you know, tolerance and all of these kinds of things. Um, but during the prayer, you would say, you know, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for these gifts, blah, 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 all fine. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for living in this great, wonderful country, all fine. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for bringing us Jonah Goldberg tonight. Uh -huh. And <laughs> there was just always something a little weird about that last part, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but they're all decent, you know, nice people and um, and very successful people. So, I mean, I, I agree with you with that. I mean, it's sort of like. I used to be really obsessed because I loved the Omen movies and oh, yes. the third Omen movie was all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I had my first real introduction to the book of revelation. Right. And it's revelation, not revelations. Not, <laughs> Correct, right. Yes. I got in a lot of trouble with that on a previous podcast. Um, and I just, I, I love prophecy stuff. It's like, there are people who are obsessed with Nostradamus, you know I mean? And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the book of revelation is wrong or any of that stuff. I'm just saying that it's, very compelling for the human mind to think about the end times. And, you know, the, there's a bit in the, in the, the, the third Omen movie where they're talking about, um, uh, how the eternal sea is actually the European union. Um, because the eternal sea is politics and all this kind of, I love those kinds of weird interpretations of, yeah. of old stuff. And it's just kind of cool. But I guess to, before we get completely off of this, you know, this point about caring about it a lot and that therefore drives your intent, your political intensity in some ways, um, you know, it's become a cliche now, but the sort of the, in, the religious nature of environment, the environmental movement, yeah. it, it's, it's too all known. So, you know, I'm one of these guys who thinks that we have certain structures in our brain that we approach things in life and that we have we have a religious instinct that can either be fulfilled in a healthy way 
or in an unhealthy way. And um, one of the things I think is very unhealthy is treating politics as if it were religion. Yes. And um, when you hear like Democrats talk about how global warming is an existential threat, it's an extinction level event and all these kinds of things, it makes more sense as a revival meeting kind of apocalyptic thing than it does as actual policy or science. And I think, you know, there are very few left Marxists left in captivity out of a, a few English <laughs> departments. But the mainstream sort of religious impulse of environmentalism is really, really strong. And I think, you know, revisiting es eschatology and how it plays out in organizing people's lives might shed some interesting light on it. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, you know, as somebody who grew up way outside of the environmentalist movement, like I, I you yeah. know, rural Kentucky where I grew up or, you know, an evangelical school in Nashville in the 1980s, early 90s is not the hotbed of environmentalism. And one of the things that I used to never really fully understand, to be honest, is why did so much progressive social policy go along with environmentalism? Right. Like what, if we're going to, you know, look, you, you've, I'm convinced that global warming is real. There is, there is, you know, man-made climate change does exist. And so one of the first things that came to my mind for years and years and years was nuclear power, right? Nuclear power. I mean, it kind of scratches both itches. I mean, like if you're, if you are, are concerned with raw amount of emissions, I mean, nuclear power is, is an incredibly, um, you know, w what a tremendously efficient way to generate en energy. And if you just kind of like hashtag America, like few things say American power more than our nuclear, you know, capabilities. Yeah. And so it sort of scratches all these various cultural itches. And why would people be, uh, why would people be opposed to that? Why do you have all of these social policies attached? And when they began to realize that a lot of the, there was, there's sort of, an ethos to environmentalism that is well beyond, well, I want, you know, the the redwoods in California to flourish. It's there is a way of living that is either fundamentally in harmony with the natural world around us, or it is a way of living that is fundamentally trying to shape and master and um, manipulate the natural world. And one of them is the way we should be aiming towards. The other one is the problem. And I finally sort of like these pieces clicked in and I began to see, oh, so this is why that, yeah. it, you know, it's not some sort of cynical, I'm going to use climate change to get X policy. It is, there is a way of living that I believe, a holistic way of living that I believe that is in harmony with the natural world versus a way of living that is in dominance over the national natural world. One is a problem. The other one is not. And that I finally could begin to sort of see that. And somebody who's an environmentalist uh, listening to that would go, duh. <laughs> right. No, but, but, but I think from a sort of a, a visitor from Mars way, there's a lot of pantheism and animism in it. Yeah. And um, and it's and I think it is consistent with a political psychological morality that says you know, I mean, this is a big theme of suicide of the West is that the highest form of morality is being true to yourself, right? And being right. authentic and going with your feelings and all these kinds of things. And it was really interesting about, you know, 
going back and reading sort of early Christian teaching about what Christians are supposed to think about the world. And the world is a, you know, that it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fallen place with, yeah. you know, and that temptations are bad and that going with your feelings and going with <laughs> your gut is like literally the opposite of what Christianity teaches. Right. Yes. And, and so it's, it's, but it's, it's just sort of interesting how the, the, there's an, the anti, when I say anti-Christian, I don't necessarily just mean in like the hostile to Christianity thing. I mean, like, there is a set of philosophical and fundamentally religious suppositions to a lot of progressive thinking that is anti-Christian in the sense of being its opposite. Right. And, you know, the Bible says, you're, you know, you're stewards of the earth, that you guys are, you get to do stuff with it, that you can beat back nature, and that human nature is flawed, that giving into your feelings is dangerous, that you have to strive for something higher and outside of yourself, and the other side argues almost the exact opposite thing. And I don't mean it in like in a supervillain way. I just mean it yeah. as a, it's a sincerely held interesting thing that it's, it's, it's sort of Hegelian is that one thing creates its antithesis in the culture. And, and I think it explains why we talk past each other so much in culture war stuff. Oh, totally. I, you know, uh, so many differences can come down to what is your view of the nature of man? Mm-hmm. Is man fallen or is man basically good? And, you know, and and a, someone who says man is basically good says, you know, man is going, but for oppressive structures, you know, whether right. it's the patriarchy or whether it's nationalism, whether it's, you know, uh, toxic Capitalism. religion, whatever. Yeah. But for these oppressive structures, mankind could flourish. Whereas a Christian says, no, man, man has fallen. <laughs> Um, right. you know, Christ said we're evil. Um, right. you are evil. And and there are things, but yeah, we're still you can still see a world around us, all the evidence of evil, but we also do good things as well. How well, how is that? Well, you know, there's a con, a con you know, concept of common grace, all good things come from the Lord, but also there are institutions that participate in lifting us up, the you know, family, uh, religion properly understood. Um, you know, civic associations and, and community, you know, the, the institutions in our community, these are things that, that make us better, make us better than our nature in some ways. And, and so you can kind of see some of these. So the very same thing, I'm watching this show, Mrs. America on Hulu, mm-hmm. um, which is actually really pretty well done. I mean, if you're a Phyllis Schlafly fan, uh, an Eagle Form fan, you're not going to like some of it. But I would also say if you're a fan of the 70s era feminist, you're not going to like some of it as well. And you really see like this different view of the family in that snapshot era of American life. Is this something that is lifting us up or is this something that's like this prison? And and that's, you know, one of the cultural conflicts we have. And a lot of that is rooted in sort of who do we think we are? Right. Uh, and in, and if you don't have agreement on the who do we think we are, we're not going to get a lot of agreement on a, the policies that flow from those presuppositions. Yeah, but there's one thing I think pretty much all people of goodwill can agree on, and that's the value of ExpressVPN. Yes, indeed. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. 
Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. And it doesn't matter if you wear like some really cool superhero costume when you shout incognito mode. Um, even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. Let that sink in, perverts. I'm kidding. That's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized. I said that right on the first try and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption. So your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless other expert publications, as well as The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg. So if you visit my special link right now, right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support this show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. R-E-M. N-A-N-T. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so uh, um, you said before all good things come from, from God or from heaven, and that's all fine, but sometimes the mechanism of his delivery is one Zack Snyder. So uh, <laughs> why don't you explain why this is so exciting why people should care, why I should care. I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm interested in seeing it, but like give people, like people who are just curious why Twitter exploded with congratulations, Sonny Bunch, congratulations, David French stuff. Uh, <laughs> what are people talking about? Okay, so if you go back a few years, there were two major competing forces on American culture. I'm not talking Republican and Democrat. I'm talking DC and Marvel. Okay. And they had very different, uh, very different ethos. They had a very mm -hmm. different sort of artistic sensibility. So you have on the one hand, and people will object to this, but bear with me. You sort of had this DC ethos that I say was originally set by the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Although people will say, strictly speaking, that's not the DC extended universe, their standalone films, but bear with me, darker, uh, grittier, um, sort of to quote Sonny Bunch, they more uh, fully explore what it would be like if the quote, God small g walked among us. What, what, what mm -hmm. would it be like? And so you had Christopher Nolan's Batman, then Zack Snyder sort of takes over 
um, to shepherd through a kind of a DC version of this big Marvel story arc. And he has that darker sensibility. He, um, Man of Steel was controversial for that. Um, Batman versus Superman, very dark. Um, and he was charged with doing the Justice League. Well, about two-thirds of the way through Justice League, he uh, has a terrible family tragedy. Uh, I believe his daughter committed suicide. Horrible. He couldn't He couldn't finish it. And so um, DC brings in uh, Joss Whedon to finish Justice League. And he, I guess the best way to describe it is he marvelized it. Mm-hmm. You know, he made it lighter. He introduced uh, various subplots that Zack Snyder wouldn't have introduced. And the movie, quite frankly was a mess. Um, I mean, I left the theater. I enjoyed it because it's a superhero movie and all superhero movies are good in my view. Um, some are great, some are transcendent, but it was just merely okay. I mean, it was a marvelized, it just didn't. And so people knew though that Zack Snyder had worked on this thing. And a lot of us really like that Zack Snyder sensibility. I think Man of Steel is an incredibly underrated movie. And, and so we knew that there was two thirds of this thing had been done under his tutelage. So there, there had to be an alternative version of it. And, uh, and so a bunch of hardcore fans began to agitate to release quote, the Snyder cut, what would justice league have been like? And I think it was, um, so this was just a purely internet phenomenon. I mean, I joke about being a part of it. Like I was an insect by comparison to the, like the, these super fans who were agitating for this thing, a meaningless, but a lot of people began to agitate for it. And then it got this huge boost when Gal Gadot, who plays um, Wonder Woman, tweeted out last year, released the Snyder Cut with sort of a picture of her in that more Zack Snyder, darker color palette. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought, oh, oh, this could be real. And Then, you know, it just continued to build momentum. And on Wednesday, Zack Snyder announced that, yep, the Snyder Cut is coming. It's coming to HBO Max when the streaming service launches. Um, They're going to spend an an additional $20 million on it, which, you know, large sum of money if you're just, you know, editing together a cut. (laughs) And it's a real thing. And, And if you're a comic book movie nerd, it was just kind of a cool thing because it was, hey, this thing happened as a result of a tragedy, this artistic vision that was very starkly different, never got to happen, never got to come to fruition. And now it is in large part because the fans really wanted it. And so that's a readers, I mean, listeners are probably already going, man, that's way too much information than I ever wanted. Yeah, well, I would say I I did not actually realize since I am not a DC partisan, um, I had not studied this issue as closely as, as I should have. I didn't realize that there wasn't an existent Snyder cut out there. I no. thought like this was like something that they had said, okay, this is way too dark. Can't release this. Let's do this other, you know, let's do the chippier Joss Whedon version. I didn't, I had, I'd forgotten about the suicide, um, which is all awful. And um, so that, so there really was no Snyder cut. They are making a Snyder cut. Well, so it is so let, let's put it this way there was a guts of a movie that existed when Whedon took over uh-huh. and Whedon did reshoots 
He, uh, you know, added some scenes, I believe maybe added some characters. Uh, there's, you know, if you go down this rabbit hole online, which, hey, if you have a couple of extra hours, is actually kind of a fun rabbit hole to go down. You will see um, what purport to be shots from the movie that were shot with the Zack Snyder look versus oh. the Whedon look. And it's substantially different. It's substantially different. So it's just a whole different um, eth- It's just sort of a whole different um, tone. And so you knew that there was a lot out there that was already done. But and I'm no expert on how movies are made, but taking a movie from all of the various scenes that have been shot, putting it together with all of the CGI and the score and everything is just a monumental task. And so it, it's it's true that there was no Snyder Cut as in on some DVD somewhere or, or in digits in the cloud, you can download the full movie in a, as a completed project. In that sense, no, there isn't a Snyder Cut so far as I know. But in the sense that is there the guts of the Snyder Cut? Almost certainly, yes. Like the the, yeah. the core of it. Um. All right, so we've basically gone this entire time without mentioning um the president of the United States, which is kind of nice. Um, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna disappoint our biggest enemies and our biggest fans, I think. But you know, I'm 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 content with it. Um, you know, and also, I mean, my plan was because uh, I'm still only halfway through the Last Kingdom because I kind of just don't want it to end and oh, it's so, so I'm, good i'm husbanding it um and instead i've i've gotten weirdly into re-watching from the beginning the walking dead and um which may have something to do with my um eschatological interests these days um and um uh and it does i mean we're not going back to eschatology but you know when you think about the more convinced you are something like the pandemic or zombie invasion is possible, the more likely you are talking about how thinking about the end times, the more likely it is that you're going to load up on toilet paper. I mean, I just think that's a, (laughs) it's, it's just a fact. Right. And, um, um, and it's interesting being alone during a pandemic, watching it, how much more, pandemic-y it feels like you've you've kind of forget how you know the whole premise is that it was it's the thing started you know as a pandemic that the cdc was studying and and um and it just it it it, it kind of gives it a whole different feeling than it had yeah. the first time um which is kind of interesting but i have this new theory about you know because we talked about this a lot about the best places to um prep for a zombie apocalypse we're yeah. down right and um my wife refuses to agree that an island would be good because max brooks's world war z book convinced her that they can walk on the bottom of the ocean hmm. and come back up and i just i think that's not canon i don't think it's true particularly if you're an island that has good currents around it they're not strong yeah. enough to come back up so i still think island is a pretty good place to be particularly if you have means of going back and forth but like, have you ever done zip lining? Yes. Okay. So you know how some zip line courses or ropes courses, they have two ropes that you use as sort of railings and then one rope that you use to walk on. So you're not quite tight roping it because you're yes. having your hands on. It occurred to me that if you could create that system between tall buildings, 
<laughs> right? Where you live on the roof, you control access. Um, because in a lot of zombie movies, the the roof is actually a great place to hang out for a while. But the problem is, is you run out of supplies and all of that kind of thing. And then you got to go down the stairs. But if you had access to a network of roofs, you could run gardens up there. Yeah. And if zombies ever showed up on one, there's no way they could walk across those rope bridge things. So all you'd have to do is just run to the next one and go across because they they don't have the dexterity for it. So this is how I spend a big chunk of my time. thinking. So I, I'll, I have to tell you the flaw in that. Okay. Is that you're not going to age very well in that system because so we're both what 50 we're both 51 you just turned 51 yeah. yeah how many more years do you think you have on that rope before you slip uh but if, if after cocktail hour <laughs> maybe 18 months <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying Average life expectancy, then, even though you have all your supplies, average yeah, yeah, life yeah. expectancy starts to drop pretty significantly because one mistake, and yeah. that's it. Yeah, now, that's, I'm, fair. I'm, that's fair. I'm still, I'm more convinced than ever post-pandemic that rural, if you just have some land, um, mm-hmm. then, and and you've got some space between you and others, and that that there's no, there's no imminent herd, um, and you're not going to be immediately exposed to a herd of zombies. You're you can ride out a lot. You can ride out a lot. Yeah, but you're presupposing that. Um, you know, I just finished season four, beginning of season five, with the terminus thing. Yeah, you know, where they, you know, the I think the most descriptive line, what maybe the best line that explains the real dynamic of the show, is you're either the cattle or you're the butcher yeah right the real the real danger in in walking dead are other humans not zombies zombies is a a a sort of allegorical manifestation of her state of nature and it's really the humans that are the problem yes and um and it just seems to me like the farm thing piece of land you need a big group of people to defend that kind of land from a bigger group of people that's that's the biggest drawback i have there well, you know, Jonah, I've I've already got my group. So <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so <laughs> it's funny, at my old church, we used to have this, you know, this really we had this and they're still friends. I I said used I was about to say used to have these friends. No, we they're still great friends. They had this great combination of skills. So you had your critical care doctor, your primary care doctor, you had farmers, you had former soldiers, you had and so the the basic uh, idea of our group was we only let people come into the perimeter who can contribute something concrete, yeah. whether it's medical skills or, you know, whatever. And yeah, we and we had built. What was had, what was your contribution? Just asking. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> Mr. We need a legal structure. We need rules, <laughs> Jonah. We need rules. Um, my main contribution was going to be the the land because my. My family uh, has, uh, there's this farm my family has. It's been in our family since about 1840. Uh-huh. And so my, my parents have retired. And my dad, who's a former math professor, my mom, a former elementary school teacher, they're now, he's now a gentleman. My dad's now a gentleman cattle farmer in nice. rural Tennessee. So not only do we have land, we have cattle. Yeah, so that's big. when you can contribute that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're in the, you know, it's, if it's your place, you get to set the rules for admission. That's fine. I, exactly. I, that, that, that makes sense. Otherwise yeah, I'm mean, struggling. Otherwise I'm struggling. 
when my wife and I, we get, when we get to talking about this, it very quickly turns to how basically we just need to get to Alaska. And if we can get to Alaska, we'll be fine. Cause we got, <laughs> you know, uh, the extended Gavor clan. They have uh, a couple hardware stores that sell guns. So they've yeah. got access, ready access to a large stockpile of weapons, not counting the weapons they actually own in their homes already. Uh, a couple of them have these cabins that you can only get to by float plane, basically. Oh, right. Um, or, or from, or they call them snow machines, not snowmobiles or by, you know, whatever. Plus there's a lot in zombie canon that says really cold weather is bad on the hard on the zombies. They basically freeze solid in winter. So like six months of North, you know, you know, a couple hundred miles South of the Arctic circle winter, it's probably a useful thing. Um, the problem is, is like, you basically need heads up. You need someone to say, I saw something really weird today at the store. This guy ate another guy and you have to be able to recognize (laughs) it's the end times right away because it's hard to get from DC to Alaska when everybody's panicking. Yeah. If you have 24 hours, a head start, not a problem. And that's true with so much of this stuff is like, if you just had 24 hours notice, that the zombie apocalypse or a Chinese invasion or whatever it was, you could run up all your credit cards, buying all sorts of awesome stuff and set out and get ready. But if like you're hearing it on CNN, you're screwed, particularly right. if you live where I live, because we're not going to even get out of town. You know? Yeah. So what you're saying, Jonah, is that you would be a the perfect eschatological hobbyist. Uh, no, I, I, this is, look, I'm doing a freaking podcast on eschatology while everyone else wants to talk about Mike Flynn and, and all these other things. It's like, I, I find this, I, I wasn't kidding when I talked about like the Omen movies. I find this stuff legit fascinating and, and, and interesting, but anyway. Oh, it is fascinating. And I'll say I, when I, when I, um, I'd say 10, 15 years ago, uh, I was sparked years ago by reading Late Great Planet Earth. And I was like, I just want to learn about what is the theory here? Like, what is, yeah. and I, I asked people, what, who, is, who are the most intelligent, you know, pre-millennial eschatologists out there? I want to know what they think. What are the puzzle pieces? And I went down that rabbit hole um, for several years, reading book after book after book, because it was just absolutely fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And so there was a time we could have talked, oh gosh, 20 years ago, I could have talked your ear off over this theory and that theory and this theory and that theory. Um, I never was like one of these people who said, oh, it's it's all imminent. I was just super curious about it. Yeah. Just super yeah. curious. And, you know, after a while, what ended up with happening with me is the more I went back and looked at scripture, you realize that there were a lot of people who were looking for the, you know, it, you know, if you, there are a lot of people looking for the Messiah and when, you know, uh, in Christian teaching, when the Messiah actually arrived, most people just flat out missed it. Like mm-hmm. they just missed it, including people who had been like looking hard for him. Like just, you know, the people who you would have said would have been the foremost experts on what the next, what the Messiah is going to look like. And they just missed it. And uh, it just, it was a sobering reminder for a Christian that, you know, we can't, it's not like fitting together puzzle pieces. We can't sit there and just, and, and have the whole future lock into place that what we should be doing instead 
is praying that we understand the times as they come to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's the challenge. And, and I think that if you're talking about, and this is going to, we're going to do it, Jonah, we're going to circle back to Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to look at a lot of the Christian response to Trump, a lot of it, I would say is based on, and, and the justification for supporting him is based on, uh, actually not understanding the times in which you live. Um, mm-hmm. And I had this big debate with Eric McTaxis and, uh, uh, at the Q Ideas Conference, and that's not Q as in QAnon, but it's a, <laughs> sort of like Christian, a combination of Christian TED Talks and Christian Aspen Institute. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that just struck me was how much of a true Flight 93 view that... Um, that Eric had just an mm-hmm. absolute flight 93 view that the times are so grave. And I'm going to, I have, I have it up right here. Um, he says, and, and this is, these are, um, I simply don't see how anything that has been said here or said would get me to allow someone like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton to genuinely destroy America forever destroy America forever. That's pretty eschatological. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that that is, and to the extent that people realize uh, that it, people have to understand that there's a lot of people who read that and go, yeah. Yeah. He's hitting on it. He's nailed it. Um, and if you have that view, <laughs> you know, that then then the argument really isn't about Trump at all. Mm-hmm. Then the true argument is about that view, right? And 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 that's where I think one of the reasons I've seen a lot of blowback for things that I write, I write a lot against the idea that we're facing a catastrophic crisis, right? And yeah. and that makes some people mad to hear that argument. So it's funny. I was hoping we were done, but I'm glad. Now I'm glad that you did this because this sort of gets to the point that. Uh, the philosopher Eric Vergelin gets uh, Vogelin, right? whichever way I'm supposed to pronounce it, and everyone's going to email me, and all these smart people are going to send me different pronunciations. Um, but well, to use the the fancy phrase of Eric Vogelin, has us all trying to imminentize the eschaton. You know, he makes this point. He calls it eschatological violence, right? Where if you truly believe that there is total catastrophe or um, total salvation, if it's this binary choice between human out, between outcomes of life on earth, then that gives you this sort of Nietzschean permission to move beyond good and evil, right? Yeah. I mean, like, and, and honestly, as it, and this is one of the problems I have with utilitarianism. Um, you know, I wrote something recently about utilitarianism. Um, if you could truly convince me with charts and PowerPoint presentations and all of the rest that if I agree to push this button, that 99% of humanity will now live in a kingdom of heaven on earth <laughs> and be perfectly happy, uh, live content lives of meaning and human flourishing, no more suffering. The whole package, right? But 1% have to die. <laughs> if you actually believe that's true, it's actually a tough 
<laughs> question. And um, and my own view is I, I'm not going to be convinced of that. So therefore, you have to, I can't kill 100 million people, um, even if it means ushering in this new thousand years of fantasticness, right? And the same thing, but the thing is, if you do believe it, there are lots of people who say, well, that's a fair trade-off, right? You know, people die every day, and here's this thing that does all this kind of stuff. Similarly, if you think it's the Flight 93 election thing, if you think it's the end of America, that lets you, that gives you permission to be a, not to be a bad person, but to behave like a bad person. Right. Right. And I guess this is part of my problem about moving eschatology into politics, is that once you start from the premise that it's the end of the world or the salvation of the world, if we if we do X, you then give your you can re, you 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 then reason backward from that and give yourself permission to do anything that you want. Right. And I just think that I mean this is the question I have sort of for you as a theological matter. Isn't like the best way? I mean this is why I like Calvinists, right? I mean it's just, it's just like we don't know who's going in. We don't know who's going to get in. It's like, you know, heaven is the Harvard. Who knows what their selection <laughs> process is? But your odds of getting in are probably better if you behave like the kind of person who might get into heaven. Right. And <laughs> and that and that's where a huge amount of our prosperity comes from. It's a huge amount of our democracy comes from is just people saying, act as if. Act as if you're a good person and good things will flow from that. And it seems to me that that should that should that should be our approach to politics too. Is just how the world ends is somebody else's problem. Let's try to be as decent as we can in the here and now, and not support things that we think are evil, or bad, or unwise, simply because of this assertion that America or the world will be over tomorrow if freaking Joe Biden becomes president. Well, two things. One. You know how whenever you have a debate, you think, I really wish that I had said X and because you you get the you get the good retort five minutes after it's over. Yeah. Because his argument that Biden would destroy America was based in socialism uh-huh. and Biden, who just beaten the socialist by running right. against socialism, was not going to usher in, you know, the new socialist dawn or right. dusk in the United States. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and I have to briefly put on my um, stand-in for Dave Bonson. That's not the Calvinist view of, of salvation, uh, which is by faith alone and Christ alone. But Calvinists did um, w- did come to the United States and try to create that sort of shining city on a hill uh-huh. uh, without any question, sort of this old, you know, the, the phrase, the Protestant work ethic, et cetera. Right. But, you know, one of the things, I, and and I, I'm thinking about writing about this for my my newsletter today. Um, this idea that we, everything is falling to pieces is, I believe, more dangerous in the near term to the United States than any given loss in any given category of the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Be- because or I, any given election. Or any given election. But this yeah. idea that it's just falling apart, I mean, that was the foundation for a lot of the critiques and the debates last summer over all this Frenchist stuff mm-hmm. was, Everything is coming apart at the seams. We are losing everywhere. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And I'm sitting there looking at a lot of these sort of indicators of 
social and societal health. Some of them are getting worse. A lot of them are getting better. Abortion rate is lower than before Roe v. Wade. Divorce rates are declining in the United States. Illegitimacy rates are declining in the United States. Crime rates are a fraction of what they were at the worst in the 1980s and early 1990s. Like if you had gone to a a culture warrior in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and said, you know, in 20 years or 30 years, you're going to have the the divorce rate will be maybe about half of what it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the increase in divorce is going to be completely leveled off and now it's declining. Um, and you're going you're gonna to have widespread understanding in the United States that um, single parenting, because remember the Murphy-Brown controversy, mm-hmm. you're going to have widespread consensus that single parenting is not the optimal way to raise children. You would say, oh, so we're winning then. Right. And, right. and instead, there's just this constant sense of, of imminent catastrophe. And, and, and look, you know, uh, one, I think one of the central insights into why our politics is so toxic is both sides feel like they're losing uh, right. in critical areas. And, and therefore, it, it creates this sense that, you know, yeah, America could be over. And that, that incentivizes and excuses and rationalizes what, exactly what you're saying, the sort of, what, what was the phrase, uh, eschatological violence? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and just getting back to your thing about how the biblical history of being an ascendant and then losing your way and having a remnant and coming back and all the rest. Lyman Stone, a uh, friend of this podcast, writer for, occasional writer for The Dispatch, colleague of mine at AI, he has this big new study that is out this week pointing out that, yes, religion, organized religion is declining in the United States, but there have been times in the past where America had been much less religious, yes, much less churched. And this notion that we started as a country with 100% of faithful Christians all going to church on Sunday, and we've just inexorably been declining since then, is just not true. It's just historically not true. And um, it's one of these cycles things. And that means if it went down from a high and then came back up, that can happen again. But I don't think preaching catastrophism is the way to do that. But I'm not in the business of of advising the I mean, if you have a great awakening, you're awakening from what? (laughs) You know, like- Right, right, right. The very name implies that there was like a great slumbering beforehand. (laughs) All right. We got to get out of here. Uh, Caleb is dozing off. We can see him here on the video. Um, and uh, and we're going to, I don't know if this is going to be out in time for this to be helpful to any listeners, but I'm going to see you again in a few hours for the um, Dispatch Live event, uh, which we will be doing tonight. Um, and it's if you're a paid member, it's one of these things that you'll get to do more and more here at the Dispatch. So anyway, David, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, John. It was fun. Okay, so David has left the room, um, and uh, um, I know we went long. I know it was a little weird, and we, I was trying to wrap things up, and then we got way back into the weed, way back into the eschatological weeds, which uh, might be a good name for a podcast episode. Um, and uh, I still have questions. Um, maybe I have to bring in Bonson. Maybe I need to bring in like a serious Catholic theologian type. Um, to get more into the philosophy thing. Um, who knows? But uh, I like this stuff. I'm interested in it. It's um, 
intriguing. Uh, I find this stuff interesting, you know, and if, 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 uh, and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit more on the, in the ruminant or whatever we're calling it. Um, uh, because again, I'm still exhausted with politics, but, uh, I do want to, um, issue one correction, um, in what was almost, uh, haiku or a zen cone of of self-owning screw-uppery i uh did a humble brag where i kind of mocked amy walter for how she can't pronounce hydroxychloroquine and i mispronounced hydroxychloroquine in my humble bragging about how i can pronounce hydroxychloroquine so i apologize for the error um i apologize for the mispronunciation i mis- i apologize for the humble bragging um And I apologize for the long history of the wonderful city of Trieste not knowing what country it actually belongs in. There's just a long list of things I apologize for. But uh, one day we are, um, when I fully have the indulgence of my listeners, we are going to do a Wither Trieste episode of The Remnant. Um, Anyway, uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for the support. Thanks again for everybody who's become a paid, you know, member, um, it really means the world to us. Uh, you know, please, if you can do the reviews, if you can do the comment stuff, that's all great. If you can't, you just want to lurk. That's fine too. I'm still honored that you guys are doing this because it's a weird thing for me to be doing. So, um, with that, uh, thanks again, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. No, I um, I I think I monologued too much in describing the Snyder Cut. I got about one third of the way through it, and I thought, "Oh man, I could go so deep into this." And I'm all- <laughs> I've got no breaks. I've got no breaks. <laughs>